Now, there's a lot to discuss as we consider the advancement of automated driving technology. We're seeing a growing number of new tech developers jumping into this industry to try to make self-driving trucks a reality sooner rather than later. Ride-hailing company Uber got into trucking last summer through its acquisition of Auto. And this year, we've seen a new crop of Silicon Valley tech startups also getting into the game. Meanwhile, truck manufacturers and their suppliers continue to pursue their own path to automation, building on the active safety systems on the market today. We're also seeing some early movement toward a regulatory framework. But first, let's discuss the bigger picture for this move toward automated driving capabilities. Now, Chris, you've really made this a focal point uh, at uh, ATA, and I uh, wanted to get your thoughts on uh, you know, why it's so important for the trucking industry to be pay paying such close attention to this development and, uh, and to play a role in shaping it. Well, I would say this, Seth. I think the commercial sector, particularly the trucking industry, has a stake uh, in the outcome of automation. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we need to have a voice at the table uh, to help shape the framework. Uh, I came to ATA from an auto OEM and uh, know firsthand how much time the auto industry is spending with federal, state, and local uh, officials to shape the dynamic uh, of the autonomous world. And uh, I just came into this role not seeing the commercial sector uh, playing at that level. So I felt very strongly that we needed to take our seat. We need to help shape this framework uh, as it will be impactful on the commercial industry. Uh, and its future ability to grow, and uh, I think we've done just that. Okay, great. And, uh, you know, th this subject of automated driving and trucking has really kind of risen to the forefront over the last two, really three years. Uh, it's become a real hot topic across the industry, uh, but this has been in the works a lot longer than that, you know, as you can attest to, Richard. You know, you've been in this uh, field for, uh, I guess, the better part of uh, two and a half decades now. Uh, so what's your perspective on where we stand now? Uh, do you feel like we're, you know, really at the verge of seeing a lot of this become reality? Uh, where are we on this timeline as we hear more and more about it? Right. Well, you're right, Seth. It's been around for a while. I first rode in an automated truck that happened to also be a platooning truck in 1999 on a highway right. in Germany. Uh, that was supported by European Commission funding, and it, the process has evolved from there, but it really was the startups that sparked the OEMs to accelerate their timelines, and the car side in particular. Uh, and now, of course, we're seeing this transition from the car side to the truck side. I, I think it's fantastic, uh, Chris, that you're making this a priority at ATA. It's certainly needed. Um, I'm very pleased to be leading the Automated Driving and Platooning Task Force at TMC. Uh, we've made a lot of progress there. So we're, we're in early days. Um, the OEMs have a lot of technical capability. Uh, they, they will not have a problem applying that technical capability as the business cases mature. And the startup in energy is sort of vitalizing everyone and creating sure. numerous conversations. Okay. And speaking of those startups, you know, Silicon Valley is really taking a, a strong interest in trucking these days. You know, back in October, uh, Uber captured the attention of many in the industry when its auto subsidiary used a self-driving truck to deliver a load of beer for Anheuser-Busch in Colorado. Since then, Uber has merged auto with its advanced technologies group, which is developing autonomous driving technology for both passenger cars and commercial trucks, and they've dropped the auto name. And just this month, Waymo, formerly the Google self-driving car project, confirmed that it, too, is testing its technology on a Class 8 truck. And there's also an ongoing legal battle between those two tech companies. 
Waymo has filed a lawsuit accusing Uber of stealing its designs for the LiDAR sensors used in autonomous vehicles, uh, and Uber has denied those allegations. So there's also a legal element to, to what's happening. Beyond that, we've seen tech startups such as Embark and Starsky Robotics come out of stealth mode this year. Those companies are also working to completely automate on-highway driving without driver input from exit to exit. So just to give you a flavor of what these startups are doing, here are a couple of brief demonstration videos from Embark and Starsky Robotics. Let's play those clips. Giants, we should be good to go. All right. How you doing, Tony? I'm doing great. Welcome back. You know, those of course are promotional videos that make this look cool and, and maybe even make it look easy. But in re reality, of course, there's a, a lot of challenges, a lot of questions, a lot that will go into this that will, that will shape how this type of technology, you know, might be able to work in, in, in real world trucking operations. 
So, uh, Chris, I want to get your take on this influx of, uh, of new, new uh, tech companies, uh, new players in, in trucking that are just entering the industry. You know, what's the best way for, for our industry to engage with these companies who are jumping in and trying to make a splash? Well, I think broadly we're, we're seeing innovation drive this discussion. We're having it right now because of some brilliant minds. Um, people that know how to write software, uh, integrate technology, and produce a solution that could generate improved safety, better environmental benefits, lower fuel burn, perhaps even ease congestion to which our industry's you know, spending over $63 billion a year sitting in traffic. So these are all good values with return, defined returns um, that I think our carriers will be interested in. And each company that's jumped into this space is, is approaching it, uh, you know, very aggressively. The startups particularly are uh, very, you know, high risk, fast paced. Um, you know, they're tackling it in different, you know, value propositions um, and trying to uh, become the latest uh, to really, you know, take a seat and, and drive the outcome uh, from the software side. OEMs, I think, are a little bit more measured. Mm -hmm. um, but everybody's doing it. It's just, I think, at different paces and it's really, you know, taken shape. Um, so we're really enthusiastic about uh, all the energy that's coming in about uh, uh, the autonomous uh, pursuits, uh, but it really is innovation that's driving this, not regulation. And uh, I think we need to keep our focus on how we shape uh, the framework so that that innovation isn't uh, inhibited, uh, mm -hmm. that it can actually grow and, and produce the kind of results that we all believe this technology can, can do. Okay. And Richard, what, are your, what do you see as uh, you know, maybe the reason why all these tech startups are attracted to trucking now? I mean, they seem to see an opportunity, and, and, uh, and do you think we might see more also getting into the industry? Yeah, well, and in a way I'm joking, but in a way I'm not, that uh, the, the, the startup culture is such that where can you get the money? And the car side has been, you know, generating a lot of money, attracting a lot of people, and at some point, particularly because of Otto's activity, it became oh, cars aren't interesting enough anymore. You gotta go do trucks if you're gonna attract money. Uh, there's a grain of truth in that. Okay. So we're seeing that. But once, now that that's happening, in a sense, the focus of these tech innovators have, have really focused on trucking to say, oh yeah, this is a different environment and very, very interesting. You've got professional drivers, You've got uh, maintenance, uh, train maintenance techs. The, the, these vehicles are being touched every day, in some cases, by trained people. So different from the car side. Uh, so it, it is a much more interesting world, I think, from a, a business case implementation uh, perspective. Okay. And, you know, as we see these new tech developers get into trucking, uh, at the same time, truck manufacturers and established industry suppliers are also... Uh, getting into automation in their own ways, they're, they're lining up investments. Uh, and those investments are generally starting with advanced driver assist systems known as ADAS. And I think that's a term you're going to be hearing more and more, especially from the OEMs in the years ahead. Um, you know, so in the next you know, three, maybe four years, we might see truck makers introduce features like uh, lane keeping assist, traffic jam assist, uh, truck platooning, uh, as sort of a, a a step toward more automation in the, in, the, in the future. And I really do think we're looking at parallel development tracks at this point, with the OEMs uh, taking a little bit more of a, a gradual pace, building on where we are today with active safety. 
and still working on very much on assisting the driver. Uh, and that stands in contrast to some of the tech startups and, and new tech developers that are entering the industry that are really trying to jump straight to automating highway driving uh, completely from exit to exit and potentially even uh, introducing unmanned vehicles. So two different uh, uh, pathways, two different visions of the future. And um, you know, Richard, is that how you see the, this market evolving? Do you see those kind of two, two prongs uh, moving forward? Um, I do. I guess not so much in parallel, but they overlay on top of each mm -hmm. other. Uh, the, the critical thing to understand, and this gets mis misrepresented a lot, there's this idea out there that when automation comes, this huge new level of safety comes. And the situation is better than that because the huge new level of safety is coming with these ADAS systems you just described. Automatic emergency braking has been on the market for truckers for, I don't know, five years at least. Uh, it's spreading through the market. These are incredibly effective systems as well as the others that you mentioned. So in my opinion, on the car side and on the truck side, we're going to see the crash rate go down significantly as, as these penetrate the marketplace, even if automation never happens for some reason. Uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's a good news story. Uh, and so we will see, you know, that's a technology foundation on the vehicle that uh, current platooning systems are building on and the, the further systems will build on too. Okay, and Chris, do you have any additional thoughts on you know, maybe the competition that we might see developing or, or at least the different visions or different uh, timelines represented by, you know, the OEMs on one side and the new tech developers on the other? Well, I think widespread adoption is, is clearly, you know, 15, 20, even 25 years out, depending on what level we're talking about. But I think the debate is happening right now to mm -hmm. how to shape it. And I think a lot of discussion generally tends to drift toward fully automation. And I think we're decades out before we, you know, see that sort of thing. You'd have to remove all human error from all vehicles, not just commercial, but passenger to have no wheels, no, no pedals. So I think what we're really talking about is levels two and three, driver assist, not driver less. And if that's acceptable, um, I think the framework that we're, we're, we're looking at right now from startups to OEMs is really playing within the space that Richard just described. And within that, there's a lot of different value propositions. You segmented some of them. Some of it should be safety. I think that's front and center. You have obviously environmental values in there by lowering fuel burn, obviously congestion. So there's lots of drivers in there, and I, I, I think that you know, the drivers themselves um, are impacted by those factors uh, in terms of their health and well-being, uh, that the technology can make them better rested, uh, more alert, more effective as a driver, uh, particularly on the long haul. But even in the cityscapes where there's a lot of variables uh, occurring around them, many of which they don't control. So I think driver assist is where we need to put our energy. I think that's the, the most reachable goal uh, within the next few years, and it could yield tremendous benefits if it's done right. Okay. And uh, as a reminder to our viewers, you're watching Live on Web. Our focus today is the race to automated driving. And we do invite your participation in the show. You can email your questions or comments to share at ttnews.com or comment directly on this webpage. If you're watching via Facebook Live, simply enter your question in the comment box. And before we go any further, let's talk a little bit more about um, what this, the move toward higher levels of automation might mean for truck driving dr jobs, because that does come up a lot. You know, it's one of the first things that people talk about. And, um, you know, generally speaking, I think it is important to remember that the OEMs and their suppliers 
do remain adamant that the, a, a driver, a well-trained driver, professional driver, will remain a, a, uh, an indispensable part of trucking for the foreseeable future. Uh, on the other hand, the tech startups are pursuing unmanned vehicles as a not-so-distant goal, at least in some specific limited applications. Uh, so, Chris, what are your uh, expectations? Can you talk us a little bit, you know, talk to us a little bit more about uh, the the role of the driver moving forward in the years and decades ahead, uh, potentially leading to a point where we do have unmanned vehicles, at least in some uh, limited scope. Well, I, I'm not threatened one bit by level five uh, and all the hype that's been generated in the media around driver displacement. It's just it's not realistic um, for decades to come. Uh, I think if we're going to generate good, valuable, measurable returns on this technology, we need to play in the driver assist world. So, uh, again, if that's acceptable, I think the threat uh, is minimized dramatically. I think then it becomes a discussion about how uh, we improve the performance of the driver and the equipment in a much more safe, environmentally friendly way. And uh, it's within that that I think you can get some defined returns that carriers will be interested in investing. Um, yeah, but I'm just not too concerned uh, about driver displacement. I think this is more about uh, how we expand the skill set of the drivers, uh, make them safer, uh, better rested. Um, and I think, I think those are all within reach when you're dealing with level two, level three assist. So, and I always like to equate, uh, you know, the technology already exists in the aerospace world. Uh, I came from Honeywell. The tech that's on most aircrafts can already fly that aircraft, take off and land. Uh, but we still have pilots in the cockpit, and sure. quite frankly, I'm very happy we do. Uh, I like the fact that they can take control of the aircraft, not just on taxi and, and takeoff and landings, but, you know, at cruising altitudes when unexpected conditions arise, uh, it's good to have a pilot in there. We're, we're, we're viewing that the same way with, with our drivers. Um, it's really the long haul that you would see the values uh, of a lot of this technology but you're still gonna need them for the pickups, the deliveries, to navigate the cityscapes. So there's a tremendous amount of value that the driver's still going to uh, be an essential part of. Um, and it's just how does the technology make them safer and more effective in that role. Okay, and to put maybe a finer point on uh, the kind of the issue of the perceptions out there, you know, there's a school of thought that the move toward more automation could you know, help attract drivers to the industry, could make the job safer, more, uh, more compelling perhaps to a younger generation. But there's also that danger, right, that, that some people, uh, prospective job candidates might think that the job might be automated away based on what they're hearing. And, uh, you know, do you see that as a, a problem that the industry is going to have to counteract in the years ahead, you know, to, to make it clear to people that the jobs aren't all just disappearing? Well, that's an assumption, I, and there may be some merit to that in terms of, of driver's reaction to where the industry is headed and the impact technology will have in this space. I, I think the, the next generation of drivers are fairly tech savvy, mm -hmm. and I think they can understand that this is really a level two, level three discussion. And I also think that they have that, that skill set that could be uh, very beneficial to the industry. They're more tech uh, oriented and to put them in an environment where they understand what this technology could do, uh, not only for that equipment, but for the industry. Um, it, it, it makes trucking cool in a sense for them, uh, is, is it's taking uh, technology that they truly are familiar with and can uh, use to their advantage as they grow into this industry. And yeah, it's going to be good. We need to, you know, we need to usher in the next generation of, of workforce and 
uh, I think technology will certainly be at the at the centerpiece of that that uh, movement. Okay. And Richard, I wanted to bring you in the, on this too. Uh, you know, how do you see this playing out? And, and do you agree that the labor concerns are still you know far off? And you know, how do you see the role of the truck driver changing as as more technology uh, yeah. comes to the trucks? Um, well, I agree with you completely, Chris. That the the displacement, the labor displacement, is decades away. Uh, as free, uh, freight carrier um, colleagues say, you know, when they're talking to someone they might hire a young truck driver, they tell them, you can retire in this job, don't worry about it, you know. But the misperception is out there and it's, it's not helpful. Um, at the same time, I'm a, I'm a technologist. Uh, from my perspective, um, you have to look at the business case advantages when you can replace labor with technology. You know, that's sort of unavoidable. So uh, my favorite analogy for automation is uh, elevators. Back 120 years ago, elevators were a brand new thing. The engineer says, look, it works great. It takes you up, it takes you down, and the public did not trust it. And in order to get the public to trust it, there were elevator operators. And for several decades, there were elevator operators. And at some point, that job disappeared. Um, that's a bit simplistic. The idea of trucking or any kind of driving doesn't, is not that simplistic, but we will, we will see cases where maybe on private property, uh, trucking activities can be in, in a freight yard, can be moved to a, a driverless situation, um, other things such as that. So it's, it's got some legs. Um, it's also got challenges regulatorily and, and in other ways. So it's, 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 it's gonna stay on the, in the scene somehow. Mm. And you think about you know the scope of all a driver does today. Of course, is much more than operating the vehicle, as, as gentlemen have, have alluded to. I mean, there's pre-trip inspections. Right. Is the truck starting with a flat tire? Uh, you know, installing snow chains. Uh, so these are, there's so many added complexities, things we take for granted that you know if you remove the driver from the equation, you know there's, there's a lot of question marks. And uh, the developers today, um, you know, all these companies we're talking about. They're focused on on highway driving only. They're they're not uh, anywhere near automating uh, all driving conditions in in a you know, urban environment with uh, cross traffic and uh, pedestrians at cross crosswalks. Uh, there's so many more factors, so many more more variables there that makes it so much more difficult. And and let me just say that again, my my elevator example in that sense doesn't translate well to truck drivers. Okay, Their duties, the truck drivers' duties, are so much more you know, complex sure. than the elevator situation. And uh, shifting gears a little bit, you know, we've also started to see, you know, the beginnings of a regulatory framework emerge. Uh, you know, NHTSA uh, issued its guidelines for highly automated vehicles late last year. Uh, I mean, those are guidelines. They're not, uh, you know, hard and fast rules, but it's a, a kind of an early step toward uh, creating a framework. And FMCSA is now looking at um, you know, elements that might be specific to commercial vehicles mm -hmm. as sort of a complement or, or a supplement to, to what NHTSA has done. So, Chris, I wanted to ask you what you see as the top regulatory concerns or issues um, from a trucking standpoint on this technology. What, what's the most important thing that regulators should be looking at and what's the most important things that uh, you know, industry should, should look at? I think we're going to need a more, for the, more than an hour for that <laughs> right. conversation. But right. I would say this, uh, as I've, I've shared with FMCSA officials, uh, and I'm very, very pleased that the agency is, is getting a lot more engaged over the last few months um, and working alongside NHTSA, which has generally been 
the lead agency in developing and shaping uh, the policy discussions surrounding autonomous tech. Um, I like the fact that FMCSA is, is beginning to play that role. They should, mm -hmm. uh, as should the industry. We have a responsibility to take that seat and help shape that framework alongside with them. Otherwise, we're going to inherit a framework that's been largely designed by the auto OEMs. And their motivations somewhat similar, but they're very indifferent. We're a commercial sector. We're interstate commerce. There's a lot of whole different uh, values that drive our industry. And if it's not in sync with that framework, it could be uh, uh, having a negative impact, and we don't want that to occur either. Uh, but my best advice I give FMCSA is they begin to integrate into this discussion and, and staff it and, and drive it. Get smart. Do your homework. Mm -hmm. Go out and meet with the OEMs. Get into the trucks. Go to the tech companies, the startups, and see what they're doing. Experience their, their, their state of technology and where they're taking it, what it's going to do in application. But get familiar with it and then take all that and come back to D.C. Sit down and begin looking at your existing stable of FMCSRs. You know, looking at hours of service, uh, if it is level two or three and a driver's sitting in the seat but the hands aren't on the wheel, does it or doesn't it count against the 11 hours? That's a fair question and they need to address that because it's going to get asked widely. Uh, you know, things like electronic logging devices. It's a benchmark foundational technology that we'll begin seeing uh, take force and effect this December. We're talking about a much more comprehensive integrated solution that's actually communicating uh, truck to truck, car to car, and infrastructure. Um, how does that fit in and shape in the future? Uh, speed limiters, obviously an issue that would get morphed into this technology. So the existing stable of, of federal regulations, I think, needs to be looked at before you start shaping a framework that deals directly with, with autonomous technology. So sequentially, I think that would be the path uh, we would recommend they take uh, so that this is done thoughtfully, done right, and doesn't stifle innovation. Okay. And I wanted to, you know, maybe a quick follow-up on the hours of service example you gave. I know that that gets a lot of discussion, and, you know, when we talk about, you know, a future of, uh, trucks with some degree of self-driving capability, uh, what does that do to hours of service? You know, what, we, we get to the point where the driver can you know, actually disengage and is no longer required as a backup, maybe can even rest in the sleeper unit. Uh, you know, is that something the industry should be pushing for in the, in the coming years, or is it a matter of uh, letting it play out a little bit further? Well, I, I think in part we all have to take a seat and discuss it. Um, I would love the agency to you know, address the question first. We're certainly not out advocating that we begin displacing uh, existing hours of service requirements. The question we have posed, though, is does it or doesn't it count? And that is a responsibility of the agency to analyze and answer mm -hmm. with respect to this technology. Because uh, to shape, you know, how this is going to apply and the value proposition for carriers purchasing this equipment, these are measurables that have to be, uh, in part, Added another another area of, of you know thought would be in terms of teaming, and you know 20 years from now uh, is that required? Can one person driver uh, handle it with driver assist technology, whereas currently you have two, one sleeping, one driving? So uh, does that get impacted differently as a result of this? So these are all questions that I think need to be uh, put on the table and discussed openly with all stakeholders, not done in the back room, without industry input, 
Uh, that would be the worst outcome I could envision for how you uh, advance innovation. Uh, so I think the agencies are doing it in a thoughtful way, which is why you see guidance, not regulation. They too don't want innovation to be um, uh, delayed as a result of anything they did prematurely or, or poorly. Okay. And you know, I've, got a, I've got a great example uh, along these lines in terms of um, you know, the early steps. And I've discussed this with FMCSA. It's the classic case of, uh, the, in, in this case that I've seen, the port gate at uh, Port of Tampa Bay. Um, port of Palm Beach, exactly, actually. And so here you've got a very slow um, ingress process, paper-oriented, and there's trucks backed up there for about a mile, and it can take a driver an hour and a half just to creep along there. Mm -hmm. uh, so as, as we know, you know, they're burning hours while they're doing that. It's a very, very benign environment. And what I've said to FMCSA is, look, here's the type of situation where you can start to experiment with hours of service. If, if that driver is in the back uh, and doing no driving tasks, and they should be on duty not driving. Uh, and the, the truck's probably not going more than 10 miles an hour. The, the risk factor of that is very, very low. And it, it, I've talked to some of the, uh, the players down there. It becomes the difference between making maybe two runs a day versus making three runs a day. And for these drivers, that's just everything. Yeah. And, you know, kind of continuing the discussion of the hours of service implications, uh, you know, might that, you know, how it's counted, you know, how it's, it's considered, um, might that make the difference on the return on investment for a fleet that's looking to invest in this type of technology? And might it even be, you know, a, a requirement that, uh, you know, a driver who's not actively, who's on board but not actively driving uh, isn't counted as driving time? Yeah, I think uh, it is vital to the business case for the, the, the startups who are saying, yeah, you know, we'll do level four, exit to exit, but if the driver can't get uh, some credit for that in terms of driving time, the business case doesn't work. Hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, what, it, what seems to be happening is, in a sense, because hours of service regulations have been so contentious over the years, so hard to change, that it's pushing things towards the driverless world just because of that. It's, it's so funny because physics are hard to deal with. That's the driverless world, but it's almost like regulational change is harder than physics, you know, yeah. in that sense. Uh, but it seems to be really happening. Yeah, I'd, I'd just say the logistical productivity returns are, are very, very significant. I mean, I, I mentioned the 63 plus billion that we lose as an industry every year sitting in traffic. Um, detention time. Anytime you can start playing with it and minimizing the amount of downtime, uh, eliminating congestion to sitting in a yard waiting to pick up a, a load, these are measurable returns. It's not just the driver's clock. Mm. It's literally the logistics of the industry and how we provide service to our customers. And minimizing that uh, in a safe way is, is really a measurable return, sure. which I think will be a key driver in in uh, carriers' uh, decision to invest in this type of technology. So it's got a lot of potential in that sense. Okay. And we do have a question from uh, Mark Larson, who's Executive Vice President at the Colorado Wyoming Petroleum Marketers Association, uh, asking about regulation from a state angle. Uh, many states are trying to get ahead of the curve on statutory requirements for automated driving. Uh, what, in your opinion, are the necessary elements states should be addressing at this point? Uh, Chris, would you care to respond to that one? Uh, what should states you know, be doing or not be doing at this point for Well, I think, I think the states are uh, a, a, a great example of where you can innovate and even accelerate uh, the development of this type of technology with proving grounds, 
uh, states like my own state of Wyoming, um, states in Nevada you saw in the video uh, where there's a lot of wide open spaces and a lot of opportunity to test this and ensure that the software and the equipment does what it's supposed to do. Um, you know, I think that's an, a really ideal opportunity to incubate it and bring in a lot of the startups uh, into economies that haven't experienced uh, the tech boom. Um, these, are, these are economies that would clearly benefit from that in an ideal environment to test the equipment. Uh, from a federal perspective, um, we obviously have the guidance. I think that is a, a, a very elementary framework for what we will see in the future. Uh, we would certainly welcome, over time, that framework to take a federal level because of the interstate nature of our industry. Uh, we cross state lines. So what we want to avoid is inhibiting the innovation at the local and state levels, but when it's ripe for adoption, that it be a federal application so that we don't have a patchwork of requirements going state to state. That would be very uh, uh, impactful in a negative way on our industry in terms of adoption. Okay, and Richard, thoughts on you know sort of the, the state by state approach to this. Uh, some states, of course, like uh, Nevada comes to mind, are interested in really kind of facilitating this. Uh, mm -hmm. What's your take on what, what we'll see happening across the country? Well, of course, it's a multidimensional space, and uh, let me focus first on the platooning side of things. The first generation platooning, truck platooning systems will be level one, uh, which is actually out on the road now in adaptive cruise control. And, and so that's not an issue in terms of operating at that low level of automation. Uh, both drivers are fully engaged in, in monitoring the road, and they're both steering. It's just the, the pedals that are automated. Um, so the issue in platooning is following distance. In some states, there are numerical following distance minimums that would obviate the, the benefits from close following. Um, that's a very active area now because platooning is so close to the market. Uh, we're seeing changes, administrative as well as regulatory, uh, legislative changes in, in several states just in the last six months, and there's several other states that really never had a barrier. So we're seeing uh, uh, the, the total measurable interstate miles that can be traveled for platooning. It's growing quickly, and I think that's going to serve the, the early market. Uh, and the, the, the states have, have come a long way in getting a little more sophisticated about how to do that and also how not to overreact to it because it is a fairly simple system. Well, okay. We've seen a couple states actually overreact a little yeah. bit. And I think there's a federal role to play there. I think DOT in general, whether it be NHTSA or FMCSA, can certainly help steer and coordinate with their states uh, that are engaged in this area, that they have questions and they can come to an agency for answers and direction. Absent regulation, I think we want to do everything we can to improve innovation. And I think the states and localities are, are really a good place to incubate that. Um, but I wouldn't stop just at DOT for that guidance. I think there's environmental benefits that the EPA should be vocal about. I think if you look at DHS and how our industry is regulated for security reasons, uh, I don't think you want automated uh, trucks with hazardous materials with no driver attendant uh, you know, to it. There are rules and regulations that govern certain hazardous equipment where you actually have to have two drivers attending that, that uh, trailer at all times, um, meaning one can go in uh, to eat or the restroom, one always has to be in the cab. They don't ever separate from the cargo. So. Uh, those regulations need to be uh, factored into how it's adopted in certain uh, you know, segments of our industry. I think we should look at DOD and how they're developing uh, technology uh, on military bases, uh, not just here in the United States, but around the world. Those are great proving grounds. 
some of the best commercial technologies that we have today were born and bred out of military uh, environments. And so there's a good partnership for the commercial and military space to, to work collaboratively on how you, how you develop it, because I think there's mutual gains to be had there. And then lastly, I'd say the FCC is another agency that has a tremendous amount of you know, stake. With the seven channels of, of spectrum, 5.9 gigahertz, if that is all allotted to safety, which we're a part of that coalition, we advocate it, you've got connectivity. You've got the glue that's needed to connect cars, trucks, and infrastructure. And once you have that connectivity, you're really playing with something big. So talking about the platooning, you move away from a, a Bluetooth application mm. to something that's dedicated. Uh, that's going to really take off. But there's so many cool applications that mm. can come from that that I think become much more attractive and I think can accelerate a lot of the innovation that we're seeing at the state and local level now. So that, that federal role I would not dismiss. It's very okay. important and uh, we need all those uh, stakeholders at the table. Okay. And that you know, vehicle connectivity piece, we saw some movement late last year. Uh, again, it's a proposed, it's a, a V2V mandate for light vehicles. Of course, that doesn't directly pertain to uh, commercial vehicles, but trucks could you know, tap into that over time. Uh, and you know, I know Chris, you've really highlighted V2V as, as one of the pieces that could be a, a, you know, a really core enabler for, for more automation. Uh, you know, and, and as well as the, you know, the issue with uh, you know, FCC and, and uh, you know, the, your, and, you know, the industry's uh, stake in, in protecting uh, you know, the, the wireless spectrum that, that also has caught the eye of, of uh, some of the cable companies as well. Uh, why is it so important to, to keep that you know, dedicated to, uh, to transportation safety uh, rather than letting others uh, kind of get Our in? Our argument is about safety. Their argument is, is about economics. I mean, the cable industry is a powerful player. No, not dismissing that, nor do I want to pick a fight with them. It's just a basic debate. Our, our value here is safety. Theirs is Wi-Fi. And it's enabling people the ability to go to Starbucks and get a, a latte and sit outside and download YouTube videos on the same frequency that these trucks would be operating on. And I, I, I have a lot of concern about that. I think a lot of people sure. should about the idea of sharing those seven channels with Wi-Fi. Uh, I don't think you want an 80,000 pound vehicle coming by and having that signal interfered with. Uh, it raises a lot of questions and risk, not just from the interference, but from the cyber uh, you know, elements of it. So. We would argue for all seven channels for safety, for connectivity. I think it really enables uh, startups as well as OEMs uh, to really innovate in an unbridled way. I think it, it's really the key ingredient to really unleashing the full potential of this technology. And connecting everything would be a tremendous step forward, in my, my opinion. Oh, and Richard, uh, what's your take on, uh, you know, from your perspective, uh, what kind of role will vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle and vehicle-to-infrastructure play in this, this whole ecosystem we're starting to, to see emerge? Right. Well, I, I totally agree with you, Chris. I mean, these, these seven channels are, are there for a safety purpose. Those benefits have been demonstrated. And the innovation side will, will grow from there. So totally agree that it's important to preserve that. Um, I think, you know, the automation world is proceeding on its own without depending on uh, these communications uh, in general. Platooning is an exception that does depend on it. Um, and, but they'll come together eventually, you know. There's, it's a slow process, there's no way around it for the V2I to happen because you're dealing with public agency funding. But it'll come. 
There's value uh, right now, and it's being demonstrated in the Smart Columbus, will be demonstrated in the Smart Columbus, Smart City Columbus activity with Peloton Technology as a partner to demonstrate freight signal priority. A, a very simple idea, but it's enabled by this communication. So imagine a traffic signal controller in an area that's mainly warehouses and you've got a couple of lights before you get to the, the freeway. That traffic signal controller has V2I, so it can, it can read signals from trucks that have these, uh, these radios. And it knows the truck's going straight or turning right or left. That simple information exchange when there's not much traffic on the opposing roadways can enable that truck to not stop and or extend the green and it, we all know that if a truck has to stop and restart there's a, a inordinate amount of fuel burned and emissions just from that stopping restarting process so it's imagine if this were to spread across the country it's low tech and huge benefits sure and you mentioned Peloton technology uh, I did recently speak with Josh Sokas who's a founder and CEO of Peloton uh, which is getting ready to roll out its platooning system uh, uh, later this year and into next year. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the uh, truck platooning concept, it's uh, using a vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle connection to enable two trucks to move together in a, a tighter formation than normally would be possible. It's synchronizing the braking of both trucks. Uh, that allows a shorter following distance that's much more aerodynamic. You know, that can yield fuel savings in the, in the neighborhood of 10% for the following truck, 4.5% uh, for the lead truck. Uh, but let's go ahead and, and play our interview with uh, Josh Swickus, uh, who can tell us more about that. Uh, let's play some highlights from that interview. Josh, I want to go ahead and, and talk to you about uh, where things stand now. After years of development and testing and, and research, you guys are now uh, on, the, on the verge of, of launching your platooning system uh, commercially. So uh, can you go ahead and, and give us an update on where that stands? Yeah, we're uh, we're excited. You know, as you as you mentioned, we are we are finally close to uh, close to launching the system as a commercial product and bringing it to to, to fleets uh, like uh, you know many of your your members and 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 uh, readers and, and listeners. Um, we've been working on it as you mentioned for several years, um, and that's because this is really a safety critical system. Uh, so we've been putting a lot of effort in, you know, initially into prototyping it and proving the fuel savings and then into commercializing it, meaning making sure it is safe to use um, out on the roads, uh, the roads that, you know, all of your, all, all of our customers, all of your readers, uh, you know, drive on uh, every day. Um, this is a system that can dramatically improve the safety of trucks, but to do so, we have to make sure the engineering is done properly, the testing is done properly, the validation is done properly both by us uh, and by the truck OEMs and brake suppliers we're working with um, to make sure this is a truly safe system. We've also been putting a lot of effort into the, the user experience, you know, the, the experience of the drivers to make sure that uh, it's a system that can really assist them in their driving task. Uh, that's important partly uh, for the drivers themselves and partly also for safety to make sure that they can interact with the system and, and operate it safely. Sure. And are you still targeting, you know, the end of the year to begin sort of the first uh, filling of the initial orders uh, for the system? Exactly. That, that's right. And as you mentioned, we do have some initial pre-orders uh, from, from some customers, um, and we'll start filling those orders uh, at, at the end of the year. Uh, and then the real, you know, uh, major rollout in, in large quantities will be through next year. And uh, I think it's important to uh, remind uh, viewers that the Peloton system at launch will be a, a two-truck uh, platooning system. And 
uh, you know, both trucks, of course, still have a driver, and uh, both both drivers are still steering. It is automating, um, you know, uh, acceleration and deceleration, so uh, adaptive cruise control, essentially. Uh, now, looking into the future, though, um, you know, once you you launch this initial product and and look to the future. Uh, are you still interested in expanding your, your system to perhaps three or more trucks and uh, you know, adding additional uh, automation uh, at least to the, to the rear truck? Yes, yeah, so, so, so the answer to, to both is, is yes, um, but you know, it's important to, re to realize that we are focused on providing value, meaning operational savings uh, to, to, to fleets. Um, and so we're excited that we can get platooning to them now with two trucks. Uh, we're validating the system, you know, developing and validating the system for pairs of trucks only today. Um, in the future, uh, once we have validated for safety, we can move on to longer platoons where the fuel savings will be greater. Uh, but we're starting with just two trucks. Um, and we're starting with a system, as you mentioned, where the driver is fully in control of steering. They're in command of their truck. We're just assisting them with this very responsive uh, uh, platooning system that keeps them at this constant uh, distance safely. Um, uh, you know, we've, we've talked with fleets about uh, higher levels of automation, and really their interest is when that can reduce their, their operational expenses. Um, so what that means is helping save on labor, helping save on other aspects of logistics. Um, uh, you know, they're not interested in sort of a additional steering assistance that doesn't actually provide operational operational savings. If, if it provides operational you know, fuel savings, labor savings, or safety benefit, that's where we're, where we're interested. We're focused on those three areas. Um, so yes, we're working on future, future systems that, that have additional automation to save in those categories, uh, but we will only roll those out when they are fully validated and fully safe and provide benefit to the fleets. All right, Josh. Another question I think that uh, you know, comes up when we ever we discuss uh, you know, higher levels of automation in trucking is you know the the future of the of the truck driver. Uh, you know the the OEMs uh, remain adamant that uh, you know the driver is absolutely essential to trucking for uh, the foreseeable future. Uh, most of their suppliers are are very much uh, you know, see the world that same way. Uh, but you also see some of the technology startups getting into this. You see companies like Uber that are, you know, really focused on you know autonomous highway driving as you know the next step for them, uh, and, and that does kind of raise the question of uh, you know what's the future of of, um, of the driver in the industry. Uh, wanted to get your take that on that uh, from from your point of view at Peloton. Yeah, so, so uh, I, I want to first point out, of course, that platooning itself, you know, there's still a driver, they're steering, they're in command of their vehicle, uh, uh, but it is an important question for, for the future. Um, uh, and, and the way we look at this, you know, every fleet we talk to talks about the driver shortage, right? There's a huge, huge shortage of skilled drivers. A lot of fleets say, you know, they would, they would carry more loads if they could just find more drivers, right? That's really the limiting factor for them. Um, and it's projected, of course, to grow, the driver shortage to grow over time um, as, you know, overall freight movements grow, as trucking share of freight uh, grows, at, and as fewer drivers are coming into the workforce. Um, so the way we see it is, uh, yes, over time, automation will reduce the number of drivers needed. Uh, but for the foreseeable future, that's just going to slow down the growth of the shortage. Eventually, it'll reduce the driver shortage. The, the time in the future when there are fewer drivers needed than the amount of drivers that we have today, 
is far off. Um, so what that means is dr the drivers who are working today are not going to be put out of work by automation, but there will be fewer drivers entering the workforce, which is already happening. Um, so we see it as uh, you know more looking on the positive side of the drivers today are going to become more skilled, uh, more you know more high level operators of the trucks. They will continue to be critical. Uh, given their knowledge and experience and, you know, skill at driving continue to be critical uh, for, for the rest of their career uh, while the industry gets more more efficient through automation. Okay. Well, thank you for your take on that. And I think that does help kind of put this all in perspective because it is a question that many are asking, many are wondering about, and it's important to kind of remember uh, you know, where the industry stands in terms of, uh, you know, current availability of labor uh, and, and the struggles. Okay. Welcome back, and thanks again to Josh for sharing his thoughts with us. Um, yeah, we'll be sharing a link on this page that will show you a, a, the full uh, interview that I had with Josh, and he goes into a lot more detail on the specifics of his platooning system and how it all works. So if you're interested in platooning and want to learn more about uh, how this would look, what this would look like in, a, in the real world, uh, please check out that link. Um, I'd also like to open it up to our panelists for any thoughts you guys may have on the, on the rollout of truck platooning technology, which is now very much uh, uh, on the, in the near term. Uh, it's real, you know. Um, Peloton's not alone. Some truck OEMs are developing this. There's activity in Europe as well as the U.S. Um, it, and the, the benefits are so substantial, the fuel economy benefits that you mentioned. So we'll, we'll see these low-level automation systems coming out this year, apparently, for, based on in industry announcements, and it, it'll grow over time. We've, we've spent time talking about uh, driverless possibilities, and in, in my opinion, a few years later, you know, certainly not near term, we'll, we'll probably see the first driverless truck as a follower truck in a platoon. It's much more acceptable to regulators and the public because you've got a human in that two-truck setup even though there's not a human in the, in the following truck. So it's a very powerful concept. Um, at this, so what we're talking about is platooning and, and automation sort of intersect with each other. You can have platooning at various levels of automation. And we're discussing that now within my task force, my TMC task force, to understand uh, how, how those two play together. Okay. Now we're uh, monitoring the questions we've been getting in, and of course, uh, you know, by far the most common question you all have is, uh, when is this all going to happen, or at least, or some some variation of that. Uh, and of course, there are many factors that could speed this up, slow it down. Uh, you know, there's the the legal questions, there's uh, the regulatory environment, uh, public acceptance. So, I, I suppose the the most accurate uh, answer is nobody truly knows exactly when this will happen. But uh, I think that uh, we can still provide some thoughts and guidance on, on what you're likely to see. Uh, so let me go ahead and read a few of the questions we've received uh, from uh, Darren Wright, Vice President of Safety at Swift Transportation. When will this start to become a reality? Uh, Michael Fernan uh, is a Senior Director at Union Pacific Railroad. Uh, realistic timeline for fully autonomous Stage 5 driverless capability, uh, not just technology available, but also consideration given the regulation, insurance, Infrastructure, uh, thoughts uh, from, from Chris and Richard on when we get all the way to the very end, fully autonomous uh, stage five, uh, level five uh, driverless capability. Uh, as I said earlier, I think <clears throat> level five is decades out. I just, I don't see it in the foreseeable future. I think if that's widely understood, I think we're really talking about driver assist, not driverless, and that's level two, level three, and how we to develop that in a way that 
generates the returns the, to safety, environment, congestion, lower fuel burn. Uh, these are all measurable things that I think will uh, encourage carriers to invest. And I think that's certainly where startups and OEMs are collectively focusing their attention. Um, you know, I think uh, the FCC, as I mentioned earlier, could be a key ingredient. Uh, again, letting innovation thrive, um, pulling back the reins and, or you know, letting the reins go and letting agencies uh, uh, encourage this type of technology. I think having connectivity would be a huge motivator for a lot of these startups and OEMs to go beyond what they're currently doing. Uh, so we'd love to get government as much removed from that equation as possible, but yet create environments that allow this to incubate in a way that will then, at some time, conform into a framework that uh, uh, you know, both passenger vehicles and the commercial sector can fall into. Uh, I would argue, uh, on behalf of the industries, that the trucking environment, the commercial environment, is arguably a much better place to incubate and adopt the technology, could even have the ability to accelerate it uh, because it's a business-to-business -business environment. So, you know, OEMs and software companies and integrators creating something that does these things. Carriers, if it does those things, will buy that. And in the passenger world, you've got OEMs selling, you know, very expensive equipment to consumers. I'm one of them. And when I go in and buy a car, I'm a bit of a skeptic. And uh, I think it's going to be hard, not, not insurmountable, but hard to sell that value proposition to somebody that's just commuting to and from work versus our industry that's using it for a business uh, reason. So I think our space is something that really needs to be looked at to develop, but also accelerate the adoption. Uh, I think the commercial sector trucking industry is a better place to play. Okay. And Richard, how do you see, uh, I guess, the the time, time frame for you know, level five, full uh, automation and uh, commercial vehicles? Um, actually, I, uh, it's not worth talking about level five. You know, le level five means you've got an unconstrained system. It can operate anywhere that a human can operate now. Uh, and it's not necessary to talk about that because at, at level four, and I know these are the geeky right. levels, maybe <laughs> not everybody's aware, but level four simply means within a, a defined environment, the vehicle can do full automation. That's where the business cases are, the B2B, and there, there will be plenty of that. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple of thoughts of that. I, I know our listeners, you know, would, would like to uh, get, hear some dates, and I'm a consultant, so I'll go down <laughs> on the limb. Um, I, I think, you know, we'll see platooning very soon, as I said before. When we see driverless trucks moving around, um, that, there will be, of course, that idea of the driverless behind a, a lead truck in a platoon. When it's a single truck going down the highway by itself, um, that's challenging, uh, but it's not out of the question within, say, five years, because we're not dealing with a full rollout. You know, when the car industry introduces a product, then it's, that product's operating everywhere and it's mass-produced, big numbers. And we're dealing with startups, we're dealing with startups who want to do retrofits. So they don't have to get, in their minds, they don't have to get cooperations from the, the truck manufacturers, et cetera. Uh, there's a lot of skepticism out there about retrofit. However, I think a startup can partner up with a very gung-ho state somewhere, uh, a, a fleet who's interested in the, the business returns, and within five years, I think we'll see some sort of driverless operation. The more you constrain the environment, the, the simpler the job is and the sooner it can happen. So if you constrain it to um, you know, a certain time of day when there's very little traffic and it's a remote western freeway, 
certainly possible within that time frame. Um, and we'll see an even more constrained environment, which is the idea of off the public roads uh, and a freight yard doing trailer switching with, with automated vehicles. Uh, when, when are they going to be ubiquitous? You know, most trucks out there are driverless. That, that is a couple of decades off, at least. It could move really quickly if it's proven in terms of uh, safety and in the eyes of the public, and then, you know, the business returns will accelerate this much faster than it would with the car side because it's, it's a clear okay. profit motive. Sure, and then maybe a, a slightly uh, less ambitious uh, perspective on that, on uh, uh, Dave Schaller of uh, NACFI asks, uh, when will 10% of heavy-duty commercial mm. vehicles be autonomous on U U.S. highways? And I'll take autonomous to be uh, you know, with or without a driver, but self-driving on, on a highway. 10% uh, of the trucks out there um, care to hazard a guess on that. Uh, that's a good way. Consultant on the good, yeah, good way to ask a question, Dave. Um, Ten percent. Well, you know, there's this perception, for instance, that um, uh, electric cars. Most people would they would say they're up above five percent or ten percent because they see them, and really they're like at two percent. Uh, you think they're everywhere, and they're mm -hmm. not. So ten percent means a lot of trucks. Right. And we're dealing with pretty much, in, in my opinion, new truck purchases. So that takes a while for just. 10% of trucks to be new as of a model year. So I'm, I'm stalling so I can give you an answer. Um, I, I'd say 20, after 2030, Okay. you know, uh, 2030, 2035. Okay, well, uh, that makes me feel better. My, I jotted down 15 to 20 years as my own, <laughs> uh, ran my, my own guesstimate, so yeah. that's not too far off. Um, now, I did want to shift gears here a little bit to answer some other questions on, on uh, other aspects of, of automation. So Drew Peterson of uh, Eaton asks, uh, what are the current barriers the technology is facing, uh, both in terms of technology development and adoption? Um, thoughts on some of the stumbling blocks or difficulties? Uh, anybody want to chime in on, on that? Um, yeah, you know, one of the earlier questions asked questions of, about uh, what infrastructure is needed, for instance, and that's not a stumbling block. The, the developers are developing for, developing for the infrastructure as it is, so we don't have to wait on any changes to the infrastructure. Um, I think cost is not going to be a, a barrier. Uh, the, the radars are, you know, about a hundred bucks each and the cameras are less than that. The LIDARs will be in hundreds of dollars each within a couple of years. Okay. So it's, it's not a pure cost issue. It, it may be a, a significant cost for the system overall, so I don't want to misrepresent that. Um, I think it is, it's, it's uh, safety validation, um, the design process. The, the, in this sense, the truck industry can benefit from all the work in the car industry because the, the questions are pretty much the same there and it's then the the public acceptance and what does it take for the public and regulators to to accept this um, but I don't I don't really see huge stumbling blocks you know other than making the business case fit with the technology and and d demonstrating that return on investment okay yeah I would agree with Richard I I would add on to that just the regulatory elements of it as serving as as potential uh, drivers or impediments. Uh, I think you see a lot of potential for regulatory conflict amongst agencies that have different requirements impacting our industry. Um, again, I think some harmonization of that and to degree Congress can have a role in pulling those entities together and looking at the var various uh, conflicts of existing FMCSRs and how they might inhibit it. 
um, not just from a safety or environmental point of view, but from the connectivity point of view, obviously. And making certain that that's taken into consideration so that we are embracing innovation, but doing it in a thoughtful framework. Sure. I, I would turn the question around a little bit in terms of what could go wrong. Yeah, sure. um, and of course, the most obvious thing is that these vehicles start having crashes that are the fault of the uh, automated driving system. Um, we've seen that uh, already in the car side, um, and, and we've seen the public react to it. And, and you know, when you have this shared responsibility between the, the driver and the vehicle, that is a sort of a difficult area, which was the case in the Tesla crash. Um, and so I'm just saying that could go wrong. It depends. The public seems to have a huge appetite for this world of automated driving. Uh, the industry sees the benefits. I think the core thing is uh, that we have to step very, very carefully into this space. The tech developers know that. The fleets know that. We, we all know that. But we have to be very careful as to how we roll this out. Start with the baby steps. Take it, you know, one step at a time. Okay. And we're quickly running out of time, but I do want to uh, get a couple more questions in here. Uh, got, got, got a couple questions on how this type of technology could be phased in in the trucking industry. So uh, Brian Ruffier, uh, uh, hopefully I, I didn't butcher your name, uh, with the FMCSA asks, uh, where do you see automation technologies first taking hold in the large fleets? And a related question from Jana Jarvis, president of Oregon Trucking Associations. Um, how do they see autonomous trucks being phased in? So um, I'll ask uh, uh, Chris and Richard, uh, what types of trucking applications you know, might be you know, early adopters of, of uh, automated driving technology, and uh, maybe even in what, what uh, geographies or, or, uh, um, or specific trucking application? Well, I, I think this is where the economics come into play. You're going to see a lot of carriers, large carriers, probably the first to step up and pilot some of these technologies in certain applications. Each segment's a little bit different. So, you know, the, the less than truckload industry is, is more spoken wheel and very, very different in terms of that to a truckload carrier and how it will operate long haul. Um, you've got certain applications with the tank industry and how it obtains fuel at the rack, whether it be at a pipeline, a terminal or a refinery. And uh, we talked a little bit about ports and port congestion. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you can see different segments within the industry and different size of carriers uh, that will be motivated to uh, invest. And it may not be the same application for every one of them. Some of these applications may do different things. Some may have a bigger safety benefit. Some may have less fuel burn uh, motivation. So it really you know, depends on what, what you know, return they see economically for each business proposition. So. Uh, I think those are the carriers that will probably be first in line to look and, and try it. I can't see them adopting it widely, right? They're usually pretty risk adverse. Um, try it first, incubate it, make certain it works, and then expand. So, and then I think at that point it will begin to see more prevalency in, in medium and smaller uh, size carriers. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you see it playing out? Um, certainly, uh, platooning is, is going to be strong, but that doesn't work for every fleet. It depends on your, your dispatch operations, so hub-and-spoke type situations. At least for the early couple of years of platooning, where it's expected to be within fleet platooning. So you're always platooning with trucks of your own company. But that will really open up when it becomes a cross-fleet platooning, and then you can connect up in a, in a safe way, a trusted way, with other trucks around you. 
that that will be important. Other than that, it's it's about the where the environments are, are simpler or, or more maybe repeatable routes, that kind of thing. Um, that's more likely where some of these more advanced systems will, will start. Okay. Well, I see we've crossed the one-hour mark, so I uh, see that we've now run out of time. Uh, that's going to do it for our show today. Uh, I'd like to thank Chris Spear and Richard Bishop for joining us in studio today, as well as Josh Switkus for participating in the Skype interview. We'd also like to extend special thanks to Velocity for sponsoring today's program. If you missed part of the show or would like to watch it again, a replay will be posted later today on our website, ttnews.com and on liveonweb.ttnews.com. And if you want to learn more about automation and trucking, I'd encourage you to read our latest iTech supplement, which was included in Monday's issue of Transport Topics. Uh, our next Live on Web program is scheduled for July 12th, when we will discuss the release of Transport Topics 2017 Top 100 list of the largest four hire carriers in North America. Until then, thank you for joining us.